The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the EMEA editor of Provoke, and I'm joined by two brilliant guests today who are going to talk about a really important and groundbreaking new campaign by global suicide prevention and crisis support organisation Lifeline International. The campaign is called Decriminalise Suicide Worldwide, and it's the first initiative of its kind to call for legal change in surprisingly many countries around the world where suicide and attempted suicide are still a criminal offence. So first, I'd like to welcome Nick Stravs, Communications and Campaign Director of Lifeline, who is previously in agency. You may know him from his um, time as CEO of BCW Switzerland, and he also spent 12 years at Weber Shamwick, including as President of Client Experience across EMEA. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Maha. Great to be here. And also with us today is Billy Howard, founder and CEO of AI-powered insight software platform Brandthrow, who's working with Nick to ensure this campaign resonates emotionally with its audiences around the world. Billy's also a board member at Fast Company, a regular columnist on brands and marketing for Forbes. And she's also worked in PR agencies, including Weber Shamwick and Allison and Partners. Billy, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's great to have you both here. Um, important stuff we're going to talk about today. Nick, if I can start about start with you. I, mm. I remember you well from our days together at Weber Shamwick. We were very much an agency man in those days. What's your path been to your current role at Lifeline and, and what drew you to the organisation? Well, I guess it started um, in my early career in Australia in politics, uh, where it was a time in politics where you sort of, Either you were from the policy world or you're from the press world. And I was from neither. So I tried to make a virtue of that by saying, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's policy, some days it's press. Oh, most days it's a mixture of both. So why don't I be one of those kind of arbiters that, that kind of calls out, you know, how, how, we, how we deal with the situation of the day and take things forward and plan strategy, not by being polarised, but, but by looking at the synthesis of both. And that kind of informed my... PR career actually, and it led to having a lot of experience in in corporate comms, but also in public affairs, and certainly my Weber career, uh, as well as having you know very significant client engagements in the sort of Mastercards of the world and the Nespresso's and Nestle's of the world, which are pretty you know pretty corporate. Oh. Um, I always managed to have social good clients. In fact, the only ever Sabre Award. That I won was um, for the work in Europe for the Save Darfur coalition. So whether it was the Lego Foundation or Save Darfur, there was always a kind of social good element to my client portfolio, which I really liked. And that went straight back to my political career in Australia, where you know one one year you'd be doing economic development, and then with the stroke of a pen, you, your minister, the whole team, you'd be suddenly doing, you know, um, community affairs and health, and suddenly grappling with. The legislative frameworks and what it means to be a foster parent, for example, in New South Wales. So I always enjoyed that dichotomy. And, and post Weber, post BCW, that led me to working for a Swiss-based uh, educational charity that specialised in um, education for girls in Palestine. And it was my first sort of real experience as a board member and then working for an NGO. And when I went back to Australia at the end of last year, the then president of Lifeline International, John Brogdon, who 
bizarrely, his first job in politics was the first one I left. So we met 35 years ago. He sort of said to me, you're top of my list in terms of international experience, campaigning, policy, press, sensitivity, impact, all those sorts of things. This is our big challenge. Would you like to be my partner in this? And it took about a nanosecond to say, what a privilege and what an honour. So in, in that sense, all of the things I did kind of in the people I knew sort of led to that happy moment of, of, of opportunity um, and preparation. And yeah, I said, how, how soon can we start? Fantastic. What a journey. So how has this uh, decriminalised suicide campaign come about and why why is it so important? Well, you know, interestingly, if you look at the macro policy environment on suicide prevention, um, the first time it was at a World Health Organization level was only 2012. So that's that's 20 years, which is kind of nothing in global policy terms. In the meantime, there'd been a lot of work done by organizations such as the International Association for Suicide Prevention, which is a sort of the academic body, uh, United for Global Mental Health, which is a sort of advocacy body for mental health, where suicide prevention is part of that kind of mental health picture. picture. Um, so there'd been a lot of work happening for a lot of smart, dedicated people um, and not to mention the work of crisis lines, you know, Lifeline International and its members have been around for 60 years. The Samaritans in Britain, similarly, you know, nearly 70, I think. So there had always been an understanding of suicide prevention having, um, you know, being much more difficult where suicide was a crime. And in Britain, it was only decriminalised in 1961. In Australia, the Australian states only decriminalised suicide in the late 80s. Um, so it's one of those in our lifetime things that's happened. Mm. So over time and quite quickly, the recognition that decriminalisation is a critical part of changing the kind of ecosystem where suicide prevention resources can be really effectively um, deployed and delivered has, has you know become recognised. And there's a certain momentum to it. Um, and, you know, in the last sort of five years, some really significant countries in terms of population, um, India, Pakistan, um, as well as high socioeconomic countries, Singapore, um, and recently countries in Africa like Ghana, you know, they've decriminalised. So there's certainly some momentum. And what Lifeline International has the capacity to do as a membership organisation, so we have 27 members in 23 countries that are staffed by volunteers, mostly that, you know, actually man lifelines. They take calls from people in distress and they intervene in those moments that can make all the difference between somebody living or, or, or dying. Um, so we're in the very lucky position to have the means and the intent, and our board has made this one of their strategic pillars for three years, to say we can take some leadership and, and draw together the strands which have been there for a long time and been developing from across the sort of operational world, policy world, global health agenda, global mental health agenda, um, we can really draw those strands together and build on the momentum that's happened to really accelerate change. Because if you change the law, you know, these, these are laws which are really regressive, they're ineffective deterrence. All they really do is isolate people and making seeking help harder if you change those laws, you can change what suicide prevention resources look like. And in the end, you know, 
that's about saving lives. So, so for us, it was a, a, an opportunity of leadership um, with the full backing of our board and our members, which is just great. Um, and I'm glad to say within the sector, we've had fantastic support for people to have said, isn't it great because the time is there, the time is right, and how can we support you? Um, that's amazing. So what's the scale of the, the remaining um, problem? How many countries still count suicide as a criminal offence? Right. We so we um we've undertaken research that is um that has really uh taken forward different reports that have been done at different times and there've been different sort of lenses on what that looks like. We we've taken a much broader lens than has been taken before for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of which is that we've identified that there are twenty five countries where we can actually cite the legislation the criminal legislation, so therefore the legislation that needs to be changed. So that's 25 countries, um, 11 of which are in Africa, representing 850 million people. So that's that's the first next piece of um, information we've added into the collective knowledge around the landscape of criminalisation. The next is that there are a further 27 countries where it's unclear the, the actual legal status of suicide or attempted suicide. Um, and, and why that's difficult is we know there are prosecutions. Um, now, those prosecutions might be from common law. For example, in the Caribbean, some of the prosecutions that have been brought, um, brought I should say, are based on English common law. So an English common law crime against the person from 18-something could still be enforced in the Caribbean today. So those 27 countries, they represent about 370 million people in terms of population. Um, it could be customary law, it could be religious law, it could be different laws co-opted. But generally, although we can't cite exactly a piece of legislation to be changed, the net-net is the same in that the environment, the regulatory environment, and therefore the kind of social sanction environment is one that inhibits help-seeking and says to people in suicidal distress, you know, you're a criminal, you're a potentially criminal, so asking for help could actually land you in jail. And so that's just a terrible scenario to be changed. So our, our, our campaign brief that we launched uh, at the beginning of the campaign last week, um, again, you know, it's sometimes Nick puts on his policy hat, sometimes it's his press hat, sometimes it's his advocacy hat. Um, you know, that that document, which we're, you know, released, added into the sector to complement the work done by WHO and, and our, some of our peers, um, you know, now says there's 52 countries Definitively, 52 countries where it's either illegal or the status is unclear. That's one. That's more than 1.2 billion people in the in the world, who for whom access to life saving crisis intervention is almost certainly unavailable or out of reach. And we think you know that's that's a scenario that can be changed, must be changed because we also know that the role of crisis lines in terms of being community-based, 60 years of practice experience, you know, incredibly solid data in terms of help-seeking and, and what happens, um, you know, we know they work. We know they're accessible. There are pretty low barriers to entry where it's not a crime. Um, and in terms of cost, because they're community-based, you know, they're building community resilience. If you compare that with, with the cost of improving mental health systems, you know, they're very long-term, big-term, long-term investments in, in low-middle-income countries against all the other priorities they have. You know, it's an incredibly difficult decision that government has to make. We're just very 
clear in saying, if you change these laws, there are other crisis intervention solutions that can very quickly and very affordably change lives. So that's that's what we've found. Um, and, our, and our campaign will work across those 52 countries. Um, 52 countries is a lot, right? I mean, you've already said this is a, this is a broad campaign across policy, public affairs, media, advocacy, um, just to name a few channels across different countries with very different cultural, legal, political, and healthcare frameworks. What are the what are the I mean, what are the barriers here? And how how critical is the role of comms in its broadest sense to the success of this campaign? Well. You know, I think there's a um, there's a really good way of looking at it in that comms can either drive in the right framework action toward impact, um, of which you know awareness raising and visibility are really important. But as a kind of accelerant to action, communications are really vital, uh, and the way that communications are consumed, the sort of democratization of where communication you know can be sourced and can be consumed so we're talking across low middle income countries um you know that's that's an incredibly valuable opportunity for us um and what we had to do was design a campaign where comms would play a really critical role in slightly unpacking the issue because mm-hmm. to start with when you when you tell people suicide is a crime they're like don't get it really don't understand what that means so you know then you say it's a crime in 52 countries that's like you know another like really um and then you have to so we've got this really important role in unpacking what that means and taking people through a kind of experience and a a communication uh journey that goes from educating into influencing and engaging and moving toward action. So comms is critical. We couldn't do it otherwise. And and what's different to our impact campaign is we we want to actively engage those people for whom we know suicide prevention is really passionately important and help them lend their voice to the campaigns that will happen at country level because legislative change by and large, happens at national level, sometimes at state level, depending on the if it's a federation, but, but by and large country levels. So within those 52 countries, the coalitions for change, you know, part of what communications is going to do is let us help shape and share the voices of those advocates who are supporting change with the actors who are driving change at national level. And again, that's exactly a kind of um, campaign, you know, communications campaign sort of idea and fantastic opportunity. So, you know, we're going beyond awareness, which is a critical path to get there, into helping to shape and share voices to drive measurable change. So we couldn't do that without comps. And I think the parallel we'd look at is some of the great work that's been done in some of the other organisations, our peer organisations, research organisations, you know, that work through a very different classical kind of, um, you know, uh, research hierarchy organised into various interest group committees and then there are different national committees and it sort of cascades down and, you know, that's that's great and that's worked, you know, for decades, but it's also really slow. So mm-hmm. communications acts as our accelerant as well as the principal means of engagement and then technology is the means to both um, shape and share the impact 
and measure it. So communications and impact going hand to hand in this case. We'll talk a little bit more about how you're working with Brand Throw to build the the tech element into this campaign. But Billy, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what Brand Throw actually does? Sure. Um, you know, uh, as a lifelong marketer and communicator, you know, Nick and I met many years ago at at Weber. You know, I've always been. Uh, a passionate storyteller, a passionate communicator, and you know, in in thinking through how to evolve it as something that would be not just about awareness, as as Nick mentioned, but to be more measurable and impactful in meaningful ways throughout the years. Um, you know, I've always leaned into different things as different as Nick mentioned, accelerants in taking communications into turning storytelling into a business competency, whether it was at a certain point when I left agency life to write the book, WeCommerce, examining how those companies who invested in creativity as a currency to drive business uh, would outperform those who didn't. And McKinsey did a study several years after that that proved that those companies who invested in creativity outperformed those in the S&P 500 because they did so. When we started Branthrow, we started with a very similar emotion, putting in place of creativity, this idea of emotion and the idea of that there was no true precise emotional understanding of how any stakeholder felt so if that was the case, how could you possibly expect to get people to act if you had no precise means of understanding how they felt? Mm. And that's what Branthrow is built upon. It is the only emotional data set in the world that provides a marketer, a communicator, a storyteller, anyone who is trying to reach a stakeholder with an ability to both predictively as well as quantifiably score emotion. So we are literally able to let any of our clients know, and in this case, it's such a, a meaningful use case because we're doing it um, not just to sell more product or services, but to hopefully save lives by enabling Nick and team to be able to know how people feel not only about joining the, the movement that is Lifeline International and what it is setting out to do, but we can predictively let him and team know also what are the best ways of talking about it and bringing it to life so that we can take people on an emotional journey that matches how they are going to most positively feel in order to get them to act. And that's the type of work that we're doing at Branthrow Broadly with, with brands and, and organizations around the world. But in this particular uh, use case, it's even more meaningful, as I said, because we've created an emotional blueprint to hopefully help save lives. So tell me a little bit more about that emotional blueprint. I mean, this is very much holy grail stuff for the for the comms and uh, brand marketing industry, as as you know as you know very well. What what? How do you come up with that emotional score? Well, we have a precise uh, methodology. It's a it's a survey instrument, but it's not a traditional survey. We do not use statistics. We use the word survey simply because it's an online data acquisition vehicle um, that enables us to go out to get to exactly the targets that we want to reach with exactly what I mentioned, the different brand experience or organizational experience or language features that we literally want to test against from a primary and secondary emotional point of view. 
Um, we're able to do this because uh, our proprietary data science, AI, and machine learning or methodology behind our emotional scoring was actually founded upon Wall Street. Uh, our head of data science, not only uh, was he a senior data architect at one of the world's largest banks, uh, he was he's also a physicist who studied under Stephen Hawking and was able to create a means which is called non-equilibrium signal analysis, which was using only 100 data points to be able to predict where the markets were moving. And when we met him, he said, well, I can't think of anything that would be akin to market movement, meaning something never in stasis as emotion. And I agree with you that the, the existing means that exist today, whether it's sentiment analysis, social listening, watching how someone's eyeballs move, are not true precise measures of really getting to the heart of how someone feels, particularly because no one person feels any one given way at any given time. So we basically put a variety of different stimuli related to, for example, what would it take for you to join the movement? What are the things when paired together that are emotionally more relevant to you than you know, target A versus target B? When we're talking about the topic of decriminalizing suicide, for example, we looked at to Nick's point, that's not something that you can just dive into and say, did, you know, did you know a suicide is is illegal? Did you know then know it's illegal in 25, 52 countries? No, it requires an emotional journey. And our technology literally enables us and has enabled us to be able to say, hey, people are shocked and surprised. And there was a commonality that we've never seen across all of the people in the world that we surveyed. And there were people in many, many, many countries that were trying to activate to get behind our cause that instead of there being differences, the common thread was, oh my God, let's take a step back and realize that there is so much surprise. There are six primary emotions of which surprise is one of them. And the major emotional response around the idea of the mental health crisis was surprise. The major response about the number of people who are killing themselves or attempting to kill themselves was deep, deep surprise married with sadness, mm -hmm. uh, let alone the agony and, and suffering that's taking place. So normally in a brand campaign, you would not want to lead with surprise or, or sadness. You'd obviously want to be on the other end of the spectrum of emotion, which starts with love and joy. But what this emotional testing and blueprint enabled us to do was to authentically tell our story in a way that people would accept it. They would want to first understand and get past the surprise, lean into the sadness of really deeply understanding how critical a problem suicide is, let alone the fact that it is illegal. Um, before we can take them on a journey of joining us in a mission to decriminalize it. So it's almost creating the exact precise emotional architecture or in you know PR layman's terms or marketing terms, the message architecture or cadence that's required to not only get people to feel badly that this is happening, but to then activate and engage them in a mission that we're on to actually instigate change. That's absolutely that's absolutely fascinating. It's almost like you're going back a back a step and taking nothing for granted mm -hmm. unto what the the baseline for the the start of the comms 
campaign is. I'm just thinking about like with this campaign and more broader um, in the broader comms world, in 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 the brand world. Yeah. What do you what do you what have you seen so far? Obviously, you've been doing this for for some time now, but what have you seen the in terms of impact of comms campaign where you do take this step back to look at what the emotional architecture is of the stakeholder audiences versus the traditional route into a comms campaign, which may be, well be data-led, but not this sort of data-led. It's, it's a great question. And, and we're getting a, a terrific response for a multitude of reasons. First of all, we've never been in a more emotionally uh, attuned time for all of the reasons that we know uh, that have you know shaken us as uh, people around the world for a multitude of reasons. So when any brand aims to connect with a consumer or a customer or a, a stakeholder, be they employee or otherwise, to presume that you know how someone feels and that they're going to just respond in the way that you'd like them to, or you're going to tweak and adjust afterwards, which is what traditional sentiment analysis uh, allows you to do, that type of thinking no longer works. And the ability that we provided people to ultimately de-risk their entire strategy by bringing emotional understanding or what we call this agile approach to emotional intelligence to the strategy stage that enables you to you know, not look through the lens of traditional segmentation, but really create what we call emotional lookalikes, which is less about the what that you find in demographic data and much more about the who, so you know exactly who you are speaking to and what matters most to them. It has made a critical difference in, in, brand, in general brand work um, because you can't have a transactional relationship with people anymore, especially since they expect you to serve them in some way every day and do so in a way that's personalized. And when we say personalized, we don't mean, you know, that my name is Billy and that my birthday is in December, but you, you actually know the type of value I want delivered to me. And the only way that you can know that is to know who I am as a person. And that involves much more than my zip code and you know my gender and things along those lines. It requires understanding what matters to me from a purpose point of view, what matters to me from how I self-identify, what matters to me from the standpoint of the values that I have in the, in the things that make me want to engage with a brand and be loyal to and trust them. And that's where this, this predictive ability to understand emotion and quantify it uh, you know, it becomes a new KPI as well. You know, we see when we inject emotion into situations, not with the the hope of, you know, in the old days of making somebody cry at a, at a Coca-Cola commercial, but literally saying, okay, we're emotionally optimizing this campaign. And as a result, we expect to see, or we have seen uh, quantitative results such as 24% increase in sales, 20, you know, 9% increase by one ethnicity over another in on-premise engagement. And hopefully in the case of an organization like Nick, we've worked with a lot of not-for-profits, you know, increase in people joining the cause, whether it's through their time, through their money, even in some situations through organ donation. So it's really peeling the, the onion back on the fact that 
no matter what stakeholder you're trying to reach today, um, you know, the democratization of, of, yes, communication, but to us, emotional understanding is going to be vital to any organization who's hoping to succeed um, as they move forward. And it comes down to delivering on that through a marriage of not just AI, 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 which we hear about all the time, but AI, data science, machine learning, and most importantly to us, the direct human input that we get to make our uh, math and scoring work. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's that's uh, that takes the um, that takes a slightly one dimensional emotional approach of some can lions winners to a different level. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. It's a, it's a world beyond sentiment, right? It is a world beyond sentiment, Nick. I mean, you must be. Uh, you've obviously known Billy for a long time, but how excited are you about the potential for having this um, uh, really extraordinarily? Um, complex and um, multi-dimensional emotional um, framework to your campaign? How confident are you that that's going to lead to greater impact um, in the real world? Oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm i totally confident that it's it's sort of uh, our sort of secret weapon in a sense, because what we know is there's, you know, there is an audience because we know there's a, a world of people that volunteer. You know, they give up their time to take phone calls from people in terrible, terrible distress who they'll never meet again, they'll never know in their lives, and they just willingly give of themselves to help another human. Mm. It's And it's an incredible story of humanity and generosity. So we know there's an audience there of people who do this. So to have an emotional lens on how to find and engage them for me, it was a complete no-brainer. If you if you just then put on top the incredible efficiency of having, you know, I mean, we've done we've done the surveys have we've had a sample size of four hundred, covering an extraordinary amount of markets and 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 potential audiences. That's an extraordinary thing to be able to launch a global campaign. I mean, nobody else could. You could imagine that Billy was saying, "I cry at the Coca Cola ad." You know, the research that we got on for that for a year. Um, the technology is so extraordinary that we can do this. And as Billy said, it gives us this emotional blueprint for engagement. And this will be a long-lived campaign. You know, this, you know, we're we're, we're talking three to five years um, because that's how long it can take to change laws. Sometimes it's faster, but other times, you know, especially in countries where there's not a lot of history of um, civil society engagement around this sort of reform, you know, it's it's a long, it's a longish term thing. But so importantly, because of the nature of the topic, you know, it's incredibly sensitive. The other thing Brand Throws let us do is look at all of our campaign material, our messages, our call to action, even our territories and the relativity of where suicide versus suicide prevention sits in terms of mental health, sits in terms of mental health inequity. You know, these are really big building blocks of uh, conceptual building blocks of where the campaign sits. One of the things we have to do is always communicate safely because you have to understand that whenever you talk about suicide, it can have a dramatic impact on people with all sorts of different experiences and life experiences at that moment. And while no research tool can totally ever, you know, risk manage that whole process, what we have been able to do is to make sure that all of our communication, you know, is not setting off adverse emotional triggers on any kind of you know, um, statistically 
you know, observable way. So, first, so the first thing that Brand Throws allowed us to do in developing this emotional blueprint or roadmap for the for the sort of engagement is to make sure we're as safe as we possibly can be with the content we have. Um, and then we can look at, you know, validating where we need to be, and then we can look at optimizing. But the optimizing piece, you know, that that fits in with our digital campaign agency, Topham Gurren, who won an FE for their work with the NHS. They did all the digital campaigning for the NHS around stay home, save lives um, in, a, in a really interesting fast turn, you know, test, learn, adapt scale kind of phase that 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 is really the essence of digital campaigning today. But I guess why that's really important for us is that, you know, most brands would start with performance and optimization, you know, make the creative sync. How do we make it even better? Mm. You know, we had to start with safety. And that's that's so critically important. Yeah, it's an incredibly sensitive subject, isn't it, to talk about? And I'm 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 really um interested to see how this goes. And uh, I know it's a long term thing, and it's really you know we'll we'll be keeping an an eye on the campaign. I'm sure we'll talk more. But I wish you both uh, huge success. Obviously, enormous pedigree on both sides. You had a lot of celebs at your launch last week, Nick, didn't you? Yeah, we we, we sort of we sort of um. We, we the keynote was delivered by uh, Australia's twenty seventh Prime Minister Julia Gillard. I just find that a better way of describing her than former Prime Minister because that just doesn't really seem to, you know, really recognise the achievement as Australia's first female Prime Minister. I think to then just be former, there's a bunch of former, right? She's yeah. number twenty seven. That's a good number. Um, she gave a really powerful speech calling on governments to unite. Um, and when you when you think about the problems facing the world right now, um, this is a problem that can be solved with political will. Mm. And there aren't many of those. So um, if if we can activate social change coalitions, civil society, clinicians, helplines, academics, if we can activate you know, those campaigns through our knowledge management platform, which is another part of the tech approach, allowing us to scale action, move from collective intelligence to collective active action um, across 52 countries and, and shape and share voices from a social change coalition that we know care deeply about suicide prevention and give them, give them the reason to act meaningfully in support. Um, you know, we can reinforce that political will uh, and that's how we can drive change um, in a way that then opens the door to the sorts of suicide prevention crisis lines, crisis support lines that we know work and we know can happen very, very quickly. So it's a really fast path potentially to getting more services to more people in more places. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. Um, I wish you both enormous luck and success with the important work you're doing. And um, thank you, Nick and Billy, for joining me today. Been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.